We have sung about the glory of our Savior, and we are going to see a glimpse of that glory this morning. Join me in John chapter 19, John chapter 19, and we are looking at verses 16 through 30, John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, where we finally arrive at the moment John has been building towards ever since he began this gospel. This is the climax. This is the time, the words of John 1.29, the time that the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. This is the time, according to Jesus, John 2, that the temple of Christ's body will be destroyed. John 3, this is the moment the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 10, this is the moment the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. John has been building to this moment, this event. This is the hour Jesus had in mind every time he said, my hour has not yet come or my time is not yet here, the hour is now. This is the moment all redemptive history has pointed to ever since the fall of man, when the promised savior seed would be bruised on the heel while crushing the serpent's head. When the suffering servant of the Lord would be crushed by God and rendered as a guilt offering. When, in the words of Zechariah 12, God himself, God himself would be pierced. In fact, this is the event the myriads of angels look back upon as they sing throughout heaven and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. What is so special about this moment this hour, this suffering, answer, it is here, what we're about to read, it is here that the final sacrifice for sin is offered. And God's wrath for all who will come to him in saving faith will be assuaged. And Satan's dominion will be broken. Read the text with me starting in verse 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts 
a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the death of the king, and it's profound. One commentator wrote this, we stand now on holy ground. The place of the crucifixion of the Son of God the moment of greatest trauma and highest praise. The place where the salvation of God's beloved was wrought at the cost of his beloved son. It's profound. Because of the depth that we see here of Christ's cross, what took place in these final six hours, we must look at it from a variety of angles and unpack the significance of each detail John records here for us. And that's what we'll do over the next few weeks or so. This morning, I wanna focus on the first two angles that we can look at the cross through or from. Let's start with angle number one, the physical pain of Christ's cross. The physical pain of Christ's cross. We see that starting in verse 16. So he, Pilate, handed him Jesus over, already flogged and beaten, already bloodied and bruised. He hands him over to them, specifically the religious leaders here, meaning that Pilate has caved under the demands of the chief priests. He's given them what they want, a verdict of guilty, take him, crucify him. And so Pilate then orders Jesus into the custody of his own execution squad. This would have consisted of four Roman legionnaires, one centurion. Verse 16, to be crucified, and they took Jesus, therefore most likely stripping Jesus naked once again. Pilate continuing to offend the Jewish leaders and humiliate Jesus at the same time. They went out, verse 17, the guards leave Pilate's palace and they head outside the Jerusalem walls. And according to the Roman custom, they would have led Jesus on the most indirect route they could. It would have been about a mile long of a walk 
so that all the city, all the city could see this guilty man being led to his own death. Look at verse 17, the note that Jesus was also bearing his own cross. It's the horizontal beam to which Jesus will be nailed to. It weighs about 100 pounds. That beam has been laid across Jesus' neck. It's a mark of Jesus' guilt. His arms have been stretched upwards. They've been wrapped around the beam. There's a placard carried in front of him announcing the crime he was to be executed for. We read that description in verse 19. In this case, it is Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. It's a spectacle meant to humiliate the prisoner. But it is also a scene meant to shock the public. It's a warning to any who would dare disobey Rome. And yet within this warning, there's Old Testament imagery. We've seen this over the last few weeks. Old Testament imagery. Every detail John records here is significant. Not only is Jesus fulfilling that day of atonement, sacrificial picture. He's being taken outside Jerusalem, outside the camp. He's a sin offering for the people. But not only that, Jesus is like Isaac in Genesis 22. Isaac, who's described as Abraham's only son. Here is Jesus, God's only son. And he is carrying on his back like Isaac did. He's carrying on his back the very wood on which he would be sacrificed. And he's doing it on the very hill, Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is located, the very hill where Abraham offered his only son on an altar. But unlike Isaac, there would be no substitute that would save Jesus' life this day. There would be no lamb in the thicket to be found. No, Jesus is the lamb who must be slain. He's the only son who must die. And if you know the other gospel accounts, you know that Jesus is exhausted from a sleepless night. He's emotionally drained from betrayal and defection. He's been severely wounded from the brutal beating he's endured. He's been weakened from the loss of blood and now having the sins of all who would believe and be saved, having those sins credited to his holy count, think of the weight now experiencing, at least in part, the crushing hand of his father because of that sin credited to him, Christ cannot complete his walk to Golgotha. The crossbar is just too heavy. The weight of sin is too much. And Jesus collapses to the ground. Which is why the Roman guards, according to Mark 15, The Roman guards pressed into service a passerby, a civilian named Simon from Cyrene. The Roman guards press him into 
service. They force him to help Jesus finish his journey to his own death. But the guards are doing this not out of pity for Jesus. That's not the point. They're doing this to assure that Jesus wouldn't die on the road, to assure that he would experience the full horror of death on a cross. One commentator has described the Roman mindset this way. Roman justice was harsh and cruel and unusual punishment was hardly frowned upon as it is today. Beating, mocking, cursing, taunting, and painful suffering were all regarded by the Roman administrators as justifiable parts of deserved punishment for condemned non-citizen criminals and revolutionaries. This is cruel and unusual punishment. So with the help of Simon, finish verse 17. Jesus arrives at the place of a skull, a rocky, rounded, barren hill in the shape of a, of a head of a skull, which is called Golgotha. It's an appropriate place since executions took place there. Verse 18, it is there where all could see him. Hundreds of thousands of visitors having descended upon Jerusalem for Passover, it is there where they crucified him. Again, the imagery. The very one who has promised to crush the serpent's head, to crush the serpent's skull, is now to be crushed at the place of the skull. None of the gospel writers, including John here, none of the gospel writers give a description of the crucifixion. John simply states it. There's an economy of words. They crucified him. That's the extent. There's a few reasons, one being that crucifixion needed no description to the first century mind. It was well known what crucifixion entailed. In fact, John's readers would have witnessed many crucifixions in their day. An example is that it's estimated that about 30,000, 30,000 crucifixions had been performed throughout Israel during Jesus' lifetime. They know what it means. Crucifixion was a torturous execution that dated back to the 7th century BC, to the Medes and the Persians, in the 4th century BC, it became the common form of execution under Alexander the Great. But it's not until the Romans, not until the Romans that crucifixion was perfected. It's the primary form of Roman execution. Reserved for slaves, reserved for the lower classes, in fact, all the way up until AD 337. It's a horrific way to die. So much so, Roman citizens were exempted from crucifixion. Horrific way to die. A little background. You can fill in the details. The historian Cicero described crucifixion as the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. 
the worst extreme of tortures inflicted upon slaves, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes and ears. Seneca, another historian, referred to the cross as the accursed tree. Josephus states that death on a cross was the most pitiable of deaths. In the words of one commentator, the cross was the image of extreme repugnance, cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame reserved for the lowest social classes. But mark this, the cruelty of crucifixion, the cruelty of crucifixion really had nothing to do with the hammering of the spikes to hold the victim to the cross. It's where our mind goes. That was painful, no doubt. But no vital organs were injured when a criminal was nailed to the beams. The cruelty of the cross was how someone died it's usually through asphyxiation, suffocation, when the lungs are smothered, there's a decreasing of oxygen, coupled with an increasing of carbon dioxide. Eventually, it leads to unconsciousness and then death. One doctor describes the crucifixion scene this way, applying all of this to this event, this moment. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist, he drives a heavy, square, raw iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. And just a side note here, the slain Passover lambs were also hung by an iron stake. See the Old Testament imagery. Patabulum is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, the horizontal, horizontal beams. Left foot is pressed backward against the right foot. With both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. This is in accordance with Luke 24. It states that Christ's feet were nailed to the cross. At this point, they would have tied ropes also around the limbs. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. 
Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back, as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. As you can see from that description, death by crucifixion was a slow, drawn-out process. At times, the victim could experience what was just described here for days, for days. That is why in verse 32, we'll see in a few weeks, verse 32, the Roman guards break the legs of the two other prisoners. They're still alive. Break their legs, have them sag, they suffocate to death. That's a doctor's description. It's not the only description, though, of the physical pain of Christ's suffering that we can read. We also have the scriptures describe this scene. The Old Testament gives us a graphic image of what takes place in these hours, a graphic image of the physical pain Christ experiences. It's found in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, where prophetically we are given a picture of this moment, this event. The psalm begins with that horrific cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that. You know the other gospels. Jesus is drawing minds back to Psalm 22, back to this passage He knows why his father forsook him. He's not asking the question, but he's putting his death in the context of this psalm. Listen to the man this psalm describes. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. Jesus' strength is waning. Six bogus trials, a brutal beating. They've taken their toll on Jesus like water being poured out of a cup, empty. Jesus' life juices are now gone. Verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. Jesus is losing control of his body. These are, in the words of that doctor, the cramps sweeping over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Here are the spasms running through Jesus' body. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot sure. Jesus is a broken man. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. He's thirsty. Earlier, Jesus refused the wine the guards offered him. That was wine 
that would have dulled the pain. Jesus wants none of that. So he hangs here, blistering in the heat. There's no comfort, there's no relief. The only cup he will drink is the cup of his father's wrath. Verse 16, there's no way of escape for dogs have surrounded me. It's a reference to wild dogs, vicious scavengers. They surround garbage dumps. They look for any kind of food they could find. These dogs would even lick the blood of people laying dead and helpless in the streets. That's the picture of the crowds that are watching, the chief priests who are mocking Jesus, the soldiers who are gambling for Jesus' clothes. Verse 16, a band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Christ feels the pain in each of his bones and his body. Verse 16, they look, they, they stare at me. They gawk at Jesus. They know his death is coming. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, we read this, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag their head. That's exactly what we read in the Gospels. Those passing by, this is Mark 15, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. What a fool. What a charlatan. Let this so-called Christ, Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may, so that we may see and believe. Just perform one other miracle. Then we'll come to you in faith. Even the criminals join in this mocking. Those who are crucified with him were also insulting him. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip, they wag their head. Verse 21 of the psalm. The psalmist compares his suffering to a lion devouring its prey. Viciously sinking its teeth into the victim, tearing the flesh apart. It's then followed by the image of being impaled on the horns of a wild oxen. A wild ox goring its prey with its sharp horns. That's the Old Testament version of the physical pain that Christ is experiencing. One commentator wrote this, the most diabolical form of death ever invented. That's crucifixion. So he adds, death for Jesus was unbelievable. That is true. He's the God man. That is unbelievable. He dies. But crucifixion was unthinkable because he is the son of God's love. At this point, we must ask the why question. Why? Why all this physical torture? 
Why all this physical pain? And the answer is, of course, because it was prophesied. We read Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, we read it. He'll be pierced through for our transgressions. He'll be scourged so that we will be forgiven. He'll be crushed. We read that. Zechariah 12, again, prediction of crucifixion, the pain. That's not the only reason. Even more than that, the physical torment that Jesus is experiencing, that was necessary. The physical torment was necessary because it is here that Christ is experiencing the physical dimension of God's wrath against sin. The physical pain of hell. It is true. Jesus will experience the spiritual abandonment from his father. The darkness descends, the father will forsake him. That is true. But hell is not just spiritual. Hell is physical. And so we must understand that Satan is not the master of hell. I'll say it again. Satan is not the master of hell. God is. God is present in hell. He's present there in his wrath and his justice. Hell is not where Satan punishes people. Hell is where God's holy anger against the sinner is unleashed forever. Hell is where God pours out his wrath on sin in full. And yet Christ will not suffer in hell after he dies. When Christ dies, he is immediately received by his father into paradise. That's what he tells the thief who comes to him in saving faith. Today, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me in paradise, in the garden, in the presence of God. That's why Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, into the hands of my father. He does not suffer in hell. But hell is physical. The torments and pain, physical pain of hell are real. And those torments came to Jesus here as he's nailed and hung on the cross. To quote one writer for Christ, the pains of hell, which others experienced after death, must be endured before death. Not in the next world, but in this. In a very real sense and in a very physical way, Christ was now experiencing the unquenchable fire of hell that he described. He's experiencing the hellish weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's experiencing the anguish described by being cut into pieces in the parable, Matthew 24. The agony of desiring just a drop of water to cool off the tongue. It's the parable in Luke 16 of hell. Yet he receives no relief. 
In Matthew 19, Jesus told a parable of a king and a wicked servant was turned over to him, the unforgiven sinner in this case, over to the torturers, that's the word used, the torturers, until he should repay all that he was owed. Here now, Jesus is turned over to the torturers. All of those physical images were told by Jesus. All of those images describe the physical torments of God's wrath against sin. But here in John 19, they all culminate on him. All of them. They culminate on him. They break in full upon his head. And yet he endures all of it in utter grace. He endures it willingly for others, for the totally undeserving, all who will come to him in repentance and faith. If we were not familiar with the end of the story, this would be a shocking ending. It would be unbelievable. Something's wrong here. Because the one who's dying here is the man who showed his power over every realm of existence, including death itself. He raised Lazarus from the dead. It's an unbelievable ending. This is unthinkable. Because this is the one who's the son of his father's love, not the son of his wrath. And yet here Jesus hangs in excruciating pain and he in so doing is fulfilling the divine plan of redemption. He is being pierced through for our transgressions. He's physically being crushed for our iniquities. It's physical pain. Leads into a second angle we can see the cross from. Angle number two, the emotional shame of Christ's death. The emotional shame of Christ's death. Because Jesus was not alone when he died. His followers had left him, yes, all except for John. Well, we see that in verse 25. But Jesus is not alone here. He is hung between two villains. Two villains. Finish verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two other men. Luke calls them criminals. Matthew calls them robbers, most likely insurrectionists like Barabbas. Continue, continuing verse 18, they are raised. They are raised, one on either side, and Jesus in between. There's the detail, Jesus in between. Here continues the humiliation of Christ. It wasn't enough for the Roman soldiers to dress Jesus up as a cartoon king and debase him. It wasn't enough for them to slap him and spit on him. It wasn't enough to strip Jesus naked and lead him through the crowded streets. 
Now, these soldiers now inflict more shame on Jesus. And they raise him on the middle cross, the most scorned of the crosses, declaring Jesus to be the vilest of the three criminals. Think back to that quote earlier. This is the dehumanization of Jesus. And yet, as we've seen over the last few weeks, unbeknownst to these Roman guards, they are actually fulfilling God's design, but they don't know it. In their hatred of Christ, in their shaming of Christ, they are giving a picture of what was actually taking place on the cross in the spiritual realm. Because Jesus was indeed, he was the most evil of these crucified men. He was the most evil. But not because of any evil found in him or committed by him. No, Christ must die on the middle cross. He must die as the chief of the sinners because the Father was crediting every sin of those who will ever be saved through faith in Christ. The Father is crediting all of those sins. And I don't know how you count it. Hundreds of millions of people's sins? Taking all of that sin and placing it on his son's account. So that Christ fulfills Isaiah 53, 12, that Christ will be numbered with the transgressors and put to death alongside the transgressors as the chief sinner. Why? Because Isaiah explains he himself bore the sin of many, many, not just one or two. He bore the sins of many, countless. This is a physical picture of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, the father made him his son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's humiliating shame, and yet it is a picture of the saving plan of the Father. It's not where the humiliation ends, though. There's one last humiliation heaped upon Christ. It's found on a board fastened above Jesus' head on which we find this inscription, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. This is now a mocking of Jesus' pedigree. Not only adding insult to Jesus with these words, but also embarrassing the Jewish leaders who Pilate hates. Jesus the Nazarene the so-called king of the Jews. The king of the Jews, Pilate says, has come from the despised town of Nazareth. It's a lowly town in Galilee, poor population, questionable reputation. Even fellow Galileans loathe the town. Remember Nathaniel's words, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can anything good? It's lowly, it's poor. It's insignificant in Jewish history, never mentioned by name in the Old Testament or the Apocrypha. It's a town filled with all manner of sin 
and corruption. The idea of the sign is this. Here is your nobody king. Here is your nobody king. And it was written so that all could see it and read it. Verse 20. Therefore, many of the Jews read this description for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, a public place alongside a major road. And it was written in Hebrew. That's the language of the Jews there in Jerusalem. In Latin, the legal language of Rome and in Greek for everybody else. Here's your nobody king. This is one reason why, verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews were saying, in perfect tense, repeatedly accosting Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Erase the placard. They see the humiliation involved here. Erase it. But instead, right, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Don't insult us. Don't insult us by calling this Nazarene our king. And then broadcasting that in every language under the sun. Amazing, this is the request that Pilate follows through on. He won't, he won't avoid it. What I have written, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. He's caved into every other demand. He will not cave into this one. The humiliation stands. And yet once again, again, we have seen this over the last few weeks, once again, Pilate has said here, he has written far more than he realized. And he has written this for all the world to see and read. Because not only is Jesus the king of the Jews, which he is, but when Jesus returns, he will also come as the king of the world. The king of the world. The king of every man, of man from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And amazingly here, this placard that hangs above Jesus' head is written in every language. He is the universal king. And amazingly, unbeknownst to Pilate, this placard, the king of the Jews, this is actually the first gospel track ever written. And Pilate translates it for the world to read. And it is a track and a testimony that remains even today. Jesus is the promised king. What Pilate wrote is true. Again, he wrote more than he realized, though. But he is the promised king. Jesus is the king promised in Daniel 7, who will one day be given dominion glory and a kingdom, now watch this next statement, that all the peoples, nations, and men of what? Every language. That's why it's written, in every language. Might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one, is one which will never be destroyed. That's coming. 
Jesus is the king pictured in Isaiah 6, who will one day sit on a majestic throne, and when he does, the whole earth will be full of his glory. The whole earth is a universal king. Jesus is the king who will be installed upon Zion, God's holy mountain, Jerusalem, the very city of Christ's death will be the very capital of his coming throne. Revelation 19, Jesus is the warrior king who will strike down the nations. Every language comes under him and he will rule with a rod of iron. Revelation 20, he will set up an eternal kingdom. That's the kingship of Christ. And yet on this day, in this event, at this moment, Jesus will die as the humiliated king. And he will experience the physical pain and the emotional shame of death on a cross. J.C. Ryle's words are so true. We need to grasp what he says. This is great application for us. Ryle writes this, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such sufferings for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. Death to the king. That's what we read here. Death to the king. Why? Because of the depth of our sin. Be humbled by that. Death to the king also because of the height of his love for us. That's the application. Be humbled. Be raised in praise. That's where we're going to pick it up next week. Father, we have been given a picture of the cost of the gospel. We have read, Lord, of your love for us, of your sacrifice your substitution. And Lord, our hearts are, are far too cold when we read a passage like this. We're too accustomed to it. Forgive us for that. Remind us of the sinfulness that was ours. Remind us of Father, your love for us, but also the love of your Son and the Spirit for us through this sacrifice. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.